I actually struggled to find this one. Really? It's on Disney. Yeah, no, no. I mean, like, like the American one is. I was looking for the for the German, the hard. There's <laughs> your intro. Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is a podcast talking 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. This is volume 4, potentially the last volume of the podcast. This is the 1980s, baby. And this is episode 96, Nothing Lasts Forever, a movie in which Joe Leland um, takes down just mindless terrorists in a nihilistic fashion and it stars... Frank Sinatra. Oh, no, they changed all of that. This is Die Hard, baby. Uh, I am Matt Waters. I'm joined by Ben Phillips, who by the end of this is going to be sick of me talking about Die Hard. Ben, how are you doing right now, though? I'm good. I'm good. I mean, I I, I can get my, my only type... Well, actually, I've got a couple of Die Hard fun facts, but my favourite Die mm. Hard fun fact of no movie in this franchise is an actual Die Hard movie, because yes. apart from number five... Yes. Which I'm sure I've mentioned on this podcast, but every other one of these movies is yeah. based on a source material that is not Die Hard. Like, this is based on Nothing Lasts Forever, the novel, which is a sequel to The Detective. Yes, so hilariously, they contractually had to offer a 70-year-old Frank Sinatra the lead of this movie, and thankfully they turned him down. Yeah. Uh, he then, turned them down, sorry. And then what? So Die Hard 2's original script is based on 58 Minutes, a novel which mm-hmm. is like entirely different, but basically when they're... When they're making it, they're like, oh, this is like Die Hard in an airport. Yeah. Let's just make it Die Hard in an airport. Yeah, hilariously. Again, hilariously. I'm going to say hilariously a lot, even though none of it is actually that hilarious. Um, when making this, they were like, let's make Rambo in a, in a, in a tower building. And then Die Hard, Honor, blah, 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 um, becomes a, a term in the industry for action movies. And yeah, like time and time again, they take just some other action movie and like, hmm, what if John McClane were in this? And that's why you get the massive tonal whiplash. <laughs> Never more evident than in 4, where it's like a bunch of fucking cyber hackers and then you've got old-ass, bald John McClane, like, what is any of this while Justin Long is trying to be a hacker man? That's yeah. fucking and then, awful. Yeah. <laughs> Die Hard with a Vengeance, based on Simon Says by yes. Jonathan Hensley. Yes. And Live Free or Die Hard is based on A Farewell to Arms by John Carlin. Yes. So it's like all none of these things Maybe they did start out as like I mean, hard to say whether or not they actually started out as like they they found this source material and like let's make this die hard. Mm. But all of the source material is very definitely not meant to be die hard sequels. Yeah. They just get I, turned into it. I think four is is the most like I think maybe the change got made latest in the game. Yeah, because two and three at least do fit the scenario and like two is like they had a script and it feels yeah. like oh this is again this is like die hard in an airport so let's just put john mcclain in here this is three passenger is, 57 <laughs> yeah and then three is where the franchise i'm not going to say the franchise breaks but okay. obviously giving him giving him samuel l jackson makes a very they purposely go away from like what mm. they set up which is john mcclain in in environment yes. and i guess like you have him in an environment in which he's not used to in number three. Well, he's like dragged he's... into something against his will, I think, is more of the... Yeah. I mean, as a child, I was like a Die Hard with a Vengeance truther. I was like, oh, this is the best one. This one fucking rules. And then I grew up and I was like, oh, no, it's bad. Um, <laughs> but I fucking loved it as, as like a, an impressionable, like, I, I nine to 13-year-old. <laughs> I think it's my number two. Yeah, yeah. 
But I mean, the gap between one and all the others is huge. Oh yes, yes. Um, like, and then not like, a living soul has seen Die Hard Five. But I hear it's extremely bad. Um, uh, I have I have a friend who absolutely loves Die Hard. It's like her mm-hmm. favorite movie. Of course. Uh, and and so what? Uh, Good Day to Die Hard comes out in in February of 2013 mm-hmm. and so she takes her she takes her boyfriend <laughs> and they go watch a good day to die hard on valentine's day mm-hmm. and apparently it was like their worst cinema experience they've ever had in their lives they're still together or yes they're still together oh, okay not bad going that was uh that was nine years ago jesus christ yeah so yeah this this is die hard just uh, no pun intended toweringly powerful action movie uh in the history of, of action movies a a masterclass in structure and script writing which is hilarious given you know it was so radically changed it was re- you know there are two drafts and then they're like rewriting it on the set and all of this sort of stuff um but it it is famously used i say famously internet fucking nerd love dan Harmon's circle theory and <laughs> throughout explaining circle theory he comes up with several fake little stories about where they fit on the wheel or on the circle it's called circle theory why would i call it a wheel and you know the 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 trials and the hero's journey it's essentially just turned into a wheel and the one that he consistently uses is die hard and it holds up perfectly to the theory and like every element of the of the of the circle is present in die hard and it is praised as this like you know you can think it's cheesy action all you want it is like superbly (laughs) crafted and uh, yeah, it, it launches the career, the film career. I should clarify. Yeah, we're not we're not going to disparage Moonlighting. On this Moonlighting. Uh, well, yeah, they couldn't get him because of Moonlighting. <laughs> so popular, but then Silver Shepherd gets pregnant. Uh, yes, Bruce Willis's third film at the time they cast him, he had only had one film released, and then his second film comes out while they're making it or whatever, and it's really bad and doesn't do very well. <laughs> so they also decide to pay him. Five million dollars, which at the time is considered a lot of money, hilarious, given they uh, gave human garbage Jonathan Depp uh, one hundred million dollars to play Jack Sparrow once. Uh, but yeah, it was it was considered a huge amount of money, a massive risk. They often didn't use his face or name in the marketing because he wasn't considered a sure thing at all. Alan Rickman had never been in a movie. Reginald Vell Johnson had never been in a movie. <laughs> like, it is, uh, you know, they, they throw um, Hart Bochner in because he's Joel Silver's friend. Like, it is just full of people who are not in any way a big deal. And it becomes, it's immortal. I, for me, this is the greatest action movie ever made. And that might be because it basically wasn't written by a guy who knew anything about action. He knew about thrillers. And he was like, yeah, let's let's structure it that way. That being Jeb Stewart, then Stephen DeSouza comes in and re, you know who has a little bit more experience in action, but specifically sort of action comedy. So I think that blend of of backgrounds really helps this have a different feel to it than than a lot of action. And like it, it's kind of been reduced to memes that make it seem like it's like every other action movie. But John McClane is nothing like a character that would be played by. Arnie, Stallone, well, I mean, Mel that, Gibson, that you know, the characters that, like, the, the actors that they wanted to play him. Yeah, that by is the, the exact reason why I think this movie stands head and shoulders above, like, so much action in the 80s mm. is the fact that, at the time, the genre of action is your Schwarzeneggers, is your Stallones, is your, like, a lot dumber and yes. a lot less everyman. And obviously, I think 
an issue with the franchise as it goes on is is McLean becomes less every man. But in yeah. this movie, it's just he is an outsider at this party of rich people mm-hmm. but all and also like he is just fighting to like stay alive while also fighting against like shitty bureaucracy and all the rest of it like there is a a likability and a like an like a relatability to so mm-hmm. much of this character that you do not get when you have fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger like dangling people over cliffs in commando and stuff like that, that... <laughs> John Matrix maybe yeah like he is he is there by not really happenstance you know he he has a reason to be there it's just he's from new york and and he is out here to try and make amends with his estranged wife they're still married but she's using her maiden name devastating all this kind of stuff and the terrorists or they're not even terrorists hans gruber's crew do not count on a cop being there and like a single cop shouldn't be able to take them all down they're like clearly very highly trained and yeah i think for me it's that like he is openly like this is having an effect on my mental health, you know, <laughs> like throughout. He is like freaking out more and more as it goes. And he is like very vulnerable with Powell. And yeah, there, and he's, you know, he's just a guy. He's not enormous. Like, and, and we've talked about this like eight times at this point, but like today, you know, you know, John McClane is like, he's in shape, but he's not like ripped. He is like a hairy, sweaty man. Uh, Bruce Willis hasn't started balding quite yet, but you can tell it's going to come. And and like today, it would be, you know, muscle bound, giant, fucking hairless dolphin man who has never fucked in his life. Um, and yeah, John McClane is just by by modern standards, he does look like like I think that part is actually enhanced. He just looks like a guy now, which is funny because I mean he you know he he is in decent shape um, at the time, but yeah. So it's directed by John McTiernan, who his most famous other work of the 1980s is Predator, which, you know, in any other universe, I would love to have Predator on the list. But Die Hard is unstoppable. So by Predator. But, you know, I love Predator. <laughs> a truly fascinating career, though, does McTiernan have. <laughs> like, like a true fascinating career, aside from all of the shit going on in his in his personal life. What happened in his personal life, don't you know? Uh, he he pled guilty to perjury and lying to an FBI investigation. Um, so he's been incarcerated in federal prison since uh, was was in corp, uh, incarcerated in federal prison for a year. He's also like felt for bankruptcy and all kinds of shit. Like just a it's the Thomas oh. Crown affair based on a true. You know, <laughs> I know it's actually bloody old. Yeah, it, it's also interesting to me that like you know you got the whole gang for Die Hard one. Jeb Stewart and John McTiernan bounce for Die Hard two, but Stephen DeSouza is like, yeah, I'll come back and write it, and then. For Die Hard Three, you get McTiernan back and none of the writers, <laughs> and I don't, I don't think any of them are involved in four or five. But yeah, that's also kind of funny to me that they, you know, they they all split up and made worse things. You know, in his nineties, you know, Hunt for Red October and Last Action Hero, and as I said, Die Hard Three, all this stuff, and then yeah, just vanishes off the fucking map. Yeah. So in any other, <laughs> if not for our rules, uh, Predator. I would have fought hard for on the list, but you know, Die Hard is is unstoppable. And Die Hard is released in the summer of 1988, which is appropriate as it is a Christmas movie. (laughs) I do not understand why people rail against it being... I think they do it because people fight so hard for it, thinking they're being edgy and alternative, but like, you don't have to be. It just straight up is a Christmas movie. Christmas is integral to the plot. There are multiple Christmas songs. 
he fucking puts a Santa hat on one of the bad guys and says, I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. Like, it's, it, do, it's inarguably re- a Christmas I do movie. think people rebel against it, and a lot of people who rebel against it are like, I saw this in cinemas during the summer. It is most <laughs> definitely not a Christmas movie. Yeah, but, like, Shazam is a Christmas movie, and that came out in summer, <laughs> or whenever it came out. I understand why one might be a little bit edgy to put it next to let's say, more traditional Christmas movies. But yeah, more so than anything Shane Black has done, probably more except maybe Iron Man 3, who is Mr. Christmas. The the events of this movie would not happen if not for Christmas. So, yeah. Right, before we dive into it... Die Hard nominated for four Oscars. It wasn't nominated for uh, for the big picture. Oh, the the big picture? The big picture. picture. They should have (laughs) gone the big picture. Biggest picture. Uh, yeah, no, that's what they should have. They should have most film and best film as separate categories. Oh, most film this year would be won by RRR. RRR. Yeah, that is that would be cool. Film. It would be cool. Uh, they are they are gunning hard for for some kind of Oscar play this they year. And I hope one. it's I hope it succeeds. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So best picture in 1988, awarded in 1989. You have Rain Man, The Accidental Tourist, Dangerous Liaisons, Mississippi Burning. And Working Girl, none of which we are covering on this podcast. No. Absolutely none of which. <laughs> none of those films are as good as Die Hard. None of those films are as good as Die Hard, which I think is is a, a ringing in, like, deficit to um, the Oscars. Yeah, I mean, it's another uh, one that so... on release isn't as popular as it becomes in, like, subsequent years. Um, but, yeah, still. And now, and now to do my thing where I annoy Matthew. Uh-huh. Uh, so Die Hard is awarded or nominated for four awards. It's nominated for Best Sound, Best Sound Effect Editing, Best Film Editing, and Best Visual Effects. It loses three of those to the same movie, the best movie of 1988, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. That has further than Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Sorry. Uh, Roger, Roger Rabbit's an absolute masterpiece. And also, you can't really deny it for any of the awards that it won. Like, yeah, sure. Die Hard, Die Hard is like a <laughs> like is a great effort of like editing and visual effects and sound effects and all the rest of it. But like, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is like another fucking level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, am not going to argue with you on the ground the things it won, but it's the part where you said the best movie of 1988. Yeah, it's it? the best movie of 1988. No. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, no, it's Die Hard. And that's why we're talking about Die Hard. I mean, well, the reason we're not talking <laughs> also, about Also, Back to the Future is better than Who Framed Roger Rabbit. No. IMO. I will say, though, you know who should have been nominated for Best Actor at the Academy Awards in 1988? Alan Rickman. Uh, well, he should, nom- <laughs> he should be nominated for Best Supporting, but Bruce Willis and Bob Hoskins should have been up for Best yeah. Actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bruce Willis is, is very good in this. Um, in, instead, we have, like, Tom Hanks in Big gets a nomination. <laughs> Like, if if you, the Oscars are willing to give Tom Hanks in Big an Oscar nomination, they sure mm-hmm. as shit would be able to give Bob Hoskins and Bruce Willis their Yeah, team. but at the time they don't know they're like Bruce Willis, and they do know they're like Tom Hanks. I have no answer for you about Bob Hoskins, but... I mean, Tom Hanks is really early on in his career, then, I suppose he? he still is, but... That is his first Oscar nomination, and he doesn't get another one for five years, and then obviously he infamously wins back-to-back lead actor nominations. Yeah. Well, you have to imagine... They were like, he wins for Philadelphia because obviously big AIDS mm-hmm. drama, and then they yeah. get to Forrest Gump. And say, oh fuck! It's un- so undeniable. It's, it's it's an Oscar movie. Big is such a like growing up. You're like, oh yeah, big. Everyone loves big, and then you watch big randomly when you're in your like late twenties. Like, um, <laughs> notes <laughs> notes on big actually. <laughs> anyway. I think everyone just watched the piano scene. Yeah, they're like, oh, look at him being funny. Big is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
and now this woman knows and is still kind of into it. And it's like, um... <laughs> no, actually. It's like, it's like all those people on the internet that say, like, when they draw literal <laughs> children and go, but she's actually 10,000 years old. Uh-huh. It's fine. How convenient because, like, for even, you. <laughs> even though it's the body of a child, 10,000 years old. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, it's a philosophical quandary, not a biological one. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so the movie is made for, you know, again, a relatively modest budget, 25 to 35 million dollars somewhere in that ballpark, uh, makes around 140-ish, and yeah, Bruce Willis becomes a massive movie star, Alan Rickman becomes not just a stage actor, basically, and yeah, they make many, many sequels, they make a fucking video game that is seared into my brain, um, don't know why that has survived, but it is. What, it what console is it on? Uh, PlayStation 1. Okay. And they have, I think it was released a long time after Die Hard, because it's like, it's got missions from all three mo- <laughs> all three movies, you know, long before the, the the other two sequels. But I vividly remember the, you drive a taxi through Central Park, and there's like the airport, and then, yeah, stuff from Nakatomi Plaza. And I don't think it was very good, but I just have these like very, like, clear memories of it existing so that's fun yeah i i you know it it has all the stuff we like this movie it, it's it's one location you understand the geography of it because you know i mean he revisits some of the same rooms over and over again which i personally like rather than it just being like a like a like you know the outside building exists but like internally it might as well be fucking hogwarts changing its infrastructure all the time which happens in some movies but no i i understand the flaws of this of this building um, it is i mean i think there are it is benefited by the fact that like the movie starts and they literally go, we are shutting down floors 1 through yes. 30, functionally. <laughs> Ignore those, that's just to make it high up. <laughs> they, I mean, even though there are like quite a few deaths that happen on those bottom floors, because obviously mm-hmm. like the, the security guards will obviously die in the lobby, yeah. and then you have the guys who are using the rocket launcher on the tanker all on like floor <laughs> 5 or 6, aren't they? Like yeah, It's quite yeah, low yeah. down when he like throws the, the C4 down to <laughs> blow them the fuck up. Yeah. Um... But like... With the, with the hilarious C4 in a bag on, like, a wire <laughs> to make it look like a rocket launcher. <laughs> just edit it quickly. You won't notice there's just a fucking wire connected to the ground before they even start. It does work, though. If you look at it quickly, it, it does look like it it's does. just shot a rocket. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it really benefited by the fact that, like, they shut down all these floors, and so really you're working on, like, floor 30, 31, 32, the roof is kind of, like, all they really go to. Mm-hmm at all in the movie and like so much of it is in like back rooms or like when when he's kind of like um chased out of the chased out of the vents and all the rest of it and he's, he ends up back in the room where takagi has been like killed mm. and he like enters the door and you're like, in your head you're like oh shit he's like real close to everyone else at this point yeah, surely yeah, yeah. because like they're on this floor and he's hiding out in a room like two doors next door to them like there's a a real kind of like not like in your face tension, but just kind of like because you know how close everything is happening at this point to yeah. like how yeah, how he's like, discovered at any moment. Yeah, there's like six, and he just manages to evade them. Type scenes, or like you know, he slips out of sight just before they look, and and all that kind of stuff. And the masterstroke of realizing that John has never seen Hans's face, yep. so they can do that scene at the end. Of course, that is not actually how it was originally written. It was somebody wanted them to share a scene before the end and there wasn't time and like they also had to take out some other stuff and rework some scenes so that they could 
pull this off but you know it feels organic and nice and, and like cute that that he's doing his thing and 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 he never you know he talks to hans a lot and he sees hans maybe from above through a vent with bad lighting but he never sees his face even though at one point they're like one room away from each other and stuff yeah but every um, every time they show his perspective i mean, have to, i have to imagine all of those were like fill in shots if it wasn't like the original decision because like in the scene where he shoots takagi mm-hmm. he can he can see takagi he can yeah. see the blood splatter but he can only see hans's gun hand and yeah. in the scene in the lift like it's all very much he can see he can see Carl, but he can't see anyone else in that lift yeah, or the yeah, rest yeah. of it. I do. So when you said that they reshot stuff, was it like he originally was going to meet another survivor and, and like go no, through all that of entire was... that entire scene was? I think at the end he kills Theo, the the like tech expert, and they just took that out to have him have a a little scene with Hans. Nobody was going to pose as a as a thing, and then even that like so Hans. Goes to check on the explosives. John encounters him. Hans thinks quickly, puts on an American accent, claims he's Bill Clay, a guest at the party. And you have this tense moment where, like, we as the audience know, is John going to fall for this? All of that. He hands him a gun. He immediately tries to shoot him. It's not loaded. And you can wonder, did he see the name on the wall? Uh, Because he's pulling Bill Clay off a name written on the wall, which I I don't even know the significance of the names up there, but... Uh, did 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 John notice it too? I think did like, he recognize him through? Did he recognize his voice even though he's got an accent on? Is yeah. he just untrusting and he just handed it? You know, whoever it was, he was going to hand him an empty gun and just see who it was. It turns out um, they were all supposed to have these very distinctive watches, and he was going to recognize his one. But they took out the scene where they established the watches because it showed that their truck did not contain an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the ambulance thing happens at the end so you're left with this kind of like yeah like how did he know or did, is he just you know paranoid and he, it's worked out for him um, but it's a yeah it's kind of happenstance and like a happy accident and it's a movie of happy accidents like it's old not to fuck around with this building too much uh, and they accidentally blow out like an entire floor's worth of windows and you know Bruce Willis goes partially deaf in one ear from firing blanks and when they drop alan rickman they drop him earlier than they told him they would so they get a, a more authentic shocked reaction and it's just all this all, and oh um when he when he's lowering himself down that shaft with um the strap of his gun and he's reaching out for the the other vent and then he drops and grabs the one lower the stunt man genuinely fell and grabbed a lower one and they're like hmm that's cool we'll keep that <laughs> So it's yeah, it's this movie that is like, you know, they're, they're allowed to use Fox Tower because it isn't complete yet with all these conditions, and then it serves as this perfect film location, and they've got all these actors who haven't really acted before, and they're like, Bruce Willis is busy in the daytime because of moonlighting, so they're like, okay, we need to write more scenes with the other characters, which I think really helps the film, that you get some time with Hans, that you get some time with Holly. Um, that you get oh, time with with Powell, all of that I think stuff. It's undeniable that the reason that this movie is so elevated is because of Rickman. Yeah, like, oh, I mean, he's so good. Like, like <laughs> I, I think, like, yes, there is arguments for like Powell and and for Holly and all the rest of it in terms of like how how good they are, but yeah. like. Hans Gruber is like an all-time yeah. movie villain, and like it reminded me so much of Robocop. Uh, what we talked about in Robocop. Villains were just cooler back then. Like, this yes. whole gang, they rock in, like, they're just cool guys. They know what they're doing. They've thought of everything. There's weird little scenes, like, 
he refuses to wait for him to cut the power while he's chainsawing through the phone line. So, like, he's sweating bullets because he's about to kill him. And it's like, are we supposed to be on the bad guy's side? Because they kind of rule. <laughs> um, I, mean, I, I mean, there was a thing where I was, like, looking at this movie. And so yeah. so my my one bugbear... And it, it's an incredibly minor bugbear, okay. this movie. I mean, there's, there's another one later on, but that's more to do with kind of, like, current world events and stuff like that. And sure, I'm sure, sure everyone knows what that one is. Sure. <laughs> um, repeatedly throughout this movie they're like there are 12 terrorists 12 <laughs> terrorists, you count 12 them terrorists. There, aren't 12. there are 13 ah. and everyone forget theo's little helper yeah i texted you this the other night oh did you i did i forget i'm sorry justice for christoph <laughs> okay christoph is is theo's little helper uh okay. who he's french um, oh yeah, like, there is one of them talking French while all the rest are German. Yeah, and he he's the one who's like helping. He's the one that Bruce Willis knocks out just before the end of the movie, like when he finds yeah. uh, Hans and the security guard, uh, like when they're loading up the the, the 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 bonds and whatnot. Like even even to the point where like other actors in this movie forgot that that Kristoff is a character. Where like Clarence Gilliard does an interview like years later, where he's like, "Well, I'm the only one." who's like still alive at the end to die hard. And everyone's like, no, there's this guy who just got knocked out. Everyone else like actually died. And then there's mm. Theo who just got punched in the face while they're gone. For Maybe it was enough to kill him. Okay, but yeah, then like, it's, it's also funny that like they did the die hard battery advert like a couple of years ago. Yeah. And like for what like, and just to show kind of like the, the cultural legacy of this movie, the fact that you can get Clarence Gilliard back, you can get Devorah White back, with Bruce Willis and just have them play Argyle and Theo and have it like, like people go like oh yeah it's those guys from that movie even though Argyle and Theo had like aged incre- <laughs> I mean obviously Bruce Willis has aged as well but we all know what Bruce Willis looks like whereas Argyle yes. and Theo like you wouldn't know but like the villain of this battery advert is Theo and it has an actual death for him yeah. so like <laughs> while watching it like my partner had never seen it and it was just like scene after scene of like oh <laughs> like Brooklyn Nine Nine makes sense now and and like yes. you know all these lines that have just been recycled to death and, and 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 yeah it is it is a shockingly quippy movie and I think that helps it too that like you know like Arnie moves into comedy and stuff but like his action movies are largely even if they have a comedic bent it's not like he is tossing out that many one liners. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger's like I was. I was listening to a podcast earlier on today where they were discussing kind of the the moves of action stars in the '90s, and I think the issue is is you have Schwarzenegger with his like one-two punch of Twins and Kindergarten Cop, mm-hmm. which are like I think his like his highest-grossing movies up to that point. So he then he them. like swears off action and is like, I'm a, I'm just a comedy guy. I like. Money. But it also becomes a thing where like <laughs> all of the action guys after that have to do one of these, and so you end up with things like The Pacifier and like <laughs> all of these big action stars forever after this will normally throw in the the tooth the fairy for for Dwayne. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. They will they will do something on that vein if they're an action star. Because God, do you reckon all their agents are going, Hey, Arnie did Arnie did Twins and Kindergarten and cough and that made him a bigger star than any of his action did and it's like i mean that is true but fuck off <laughs> it I'm didn't sure work I mean, out for most of the others i mean again the fact that what is bruce willis's follow-up movie to this his next film was in country and then after that look who's talking yeah die hard 2 look who's talking to bonfire of the vanities and so on and so forth so you have john travolta yeah. and bruce willis years before they team up again for for pulp fiction uh-huh. but you have bruce willis Voicing a baby. Yeah, and he he was fucking good at it, too. (laughs) But it is just funny that, obviously, like, he becomes a star off the back of this movie. 
and then immediately is back into like making a movie for younger people or like yeah like a more flippant film i guess yeah yeah i completely forgot that he plays john mcclain in loaded weapon one <laughs> and an uncredited he just wanders into a scene i think or they walk by and he's there I can't he has remember. played john mcclain so many goddamn times at this point in things that you would never expect him to be in <laughs> like battery adverts like he's in battery adverts <laughs> he, he played or he voiced him in call of duty black ops twice mm. i believe He's also in the Lego Movie Two, is he? Where there's a scene, there is a scene where I like, never got to like, it. There's a scene where like people are like crawling through events and stuff like that, and then they run into John McClane in the vents, and it's voiced by Bruce Willis. Wow, incredible! Like he will just do do John McClane. Obviously, at this point, we all know that Bruce Willis is retired. Um, I'm was... sorry, but like 15 straight director video movies disagree with you. <laughs> he, he is done now. I think. I, know, I hope. I, know. I hope. There was that rumor a couple of weeks ago that he had signed his like image rights off, so they could make AI and give him money. Yes, Incredible. exactly. I mean, um, you know, he clearly wants that money. I mean, if he's literally, it's like eighteen straight director videos broken up by one, and then there's another like seven, and he's charging like a million dollars a day or something like that, isn't he? <laughs> he charge he charges a lot of money to do that to do yeah. those movies. Yeah, um, I've no idea like... who released Midnight in the Switchgrass in theaters. <laughs> I'm looking at this movie, Lionsgate. What are you doing? Megan Fox. They were banking on her box office draw in 2021. Has she even been in a movie? Lately? That has that has to have been Lionsgate just going like, "Fuck, the pandemic has killed us. Just put something out put in a something cinema." Out. That made $97,518 at the box office. Incredible stuff. Like, you would have made more money if you just put it direct to DVD. 1% of Bruce Willis' salary per day. I've seen enough people, like, pick up, like, like, working in a video store on a Monday morning. Yeah. When you have, like, some big movie out, and there is a certain kind of customer who will come in, go straight to the direct to DVD chart, and pick out everything on that. And you go, like, the new Marvel movie's out this week. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, he, and they, they he won. Put, he yeah. my selections. <laughs> I, I, I would also want to point out that, like, before Bruce Willis has retired, he's obviously filmed three Detective Knight yes, movies. Where Detective he, Knight. J- Detective James Knight. Detective Knight in Detective Knight Rogue, Detective Knight Redemption, and Detective Knight Independence. What a. Just an adjective at the end of a title on those, isn't it? Yep. Yep. Dear Lord. Yeah, that's um, a tax write off if I ever saw it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But luckily, Bruce Willis is retired now. Like, we are saved from just what his career became in these last few years with all these people exploiting him and, and, and his illness and whatnot. Yeah. Incredibly sad. But, like, early on in his career, just a, a fucking, absolute fucking beast who is able to go from a project like Die Hard to Look Who's Talking to Hudson Hawk yeah. to Last Boy Scout I to think... Death Becomes Her, Pulp Fiction. <laughs> like, it just, just. He had range and yeah. like was also willing to be part of an ensemble and not the main draw point of a movie. I think like, I think because he comes up on TV, he's like a generous actor. He, like and like he he said how filming this movie was weird because he was it by himself for a lot of it. You know, he's used to playing off you know shot reverse shot type shit constantly. And I think he's a generous actor. I think he's a guy who who comes up acting and then becomes an action star rather than, you know, not to disparage some of the big action names, but a lot of them, they, they just did action and then maybe fell into more serious roles later. But yeah, certainly early on, he I think he's renowned for being quite a generous actor who doesn't have much of an ego. And then he's like, nah, fuck you, pay me. <laughs> and I'm not doing shit. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. that is what it is. 
you know, we talked about it a little bit already, but like that, that the element of him being by himself and talking to himself and then, you know, introducing at a certain point through like giving him someone to talk to on the radio, all of that, it all works really well. And like, you know, you get this incredible performance out of a guy that like most of the scenes where he's with another actor is when he's fighting them. Yes. (laughs) And yet it's this really good dramatic role, but it all starts with the party and like you kind of, you spend about 10 minutes forgetting this as an action movie because, you know, he's flying in on the plane and you establish the barefoot thing good and early. If they developed a few more of the party goers, you could 100% see this being like yeah. one, an awkward like dinner drama where he's like <laughs> jumping between like the most insufferable people in the world. Instead, this movie just makes one the most insufferable person in the world. Yes. But Bubba. dear Lord, Buckner <laughs> is incredible in yes. this movie. Like so good. Like they wrote, they wanted him to be suave, and he was like, "No, I want to play an obnoxious cocaine fiend." <laughs> Like the shot of him just doing a, a line of coke before he goes in to be like, I've got this. Yeah, and like when they walk in on him in her office doing coke, and then uh, John is just like, Yeah, you missed the spot on your bad 80s beard. Yeah, he's so fucking good. When he's like, Hey, hey, babe, I closed million dollar deals for breakfast, and Hans is just bemused with him. He's like, Oh, you're so clever. You've worked all of this out. And yeah, he just is so convinced. It, is he is he the one that gives Hans the idea to use the terrorist organizations? Because he obviously walks in there and goes like, "I don't know what you guys are doing. You're for the Hebes. You're for the you're for all for the Northern Northern Ireland, yeah, Northern yeah, Ireland, yeah. all the rest of it." And then like immediately he goes like, "Yeah, we'll like free these brothers in Ireland, free these bro- brothers in." Uh, I forgot the one where he like goes like I read it in a time Somalia magazine. Somalia and yeah, yeah. Oh no, Sri Lanka maybe. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. I assume not. But maybe um, it just—it was just funny if like that was the only reason why he decided to call in those those particular names was just because oh yeah like I can yeah. use this to kind of parlay into it this the, this one dickhead has had like one good <laughs> impact on this movie yeah Hart Bachner gives us our obligatory tie to Batman uh, he he <laughs> <laughs> was in Mask of the Phantasm where he was really really good uh, as one of the red herrings um, as to like who it is but he's he's so good at being this obnoxious guy to the point that when he got shot my partner went good <laughs> I was like honestly. That that feeling is not possible anymore in movies. You couldn't possibly be want someone to die and then they die and it's good. Like someone anymore. someone who is like yeah, someone who is neutral and someone who is all the right. like yeah, like if I I feel like movies have lost some of their ambiguity. Yeah. Like or at least mainstream action movies have lost some of their ambiguity. And I have to imagine a lot of that is just studio executives being like, we need a villain. Yeah. Like and even when you get something like something like a killmonger when they yeah. are correct in their opinions, they are but still... But they do want to do a race war and, like, kill yes. billions of people. <laughs> they are so outsized in their in their opinions. Yes. And their, and their actions that they take. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you and have to make sure that, like, oh, no, 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 but um, but he is bad and the good guys are good and um, don't also worry about it. 100%, though, if this movie was made nowadays and, like, if they had any sense of franchiseness with this thing, I have to imagine they keep Rickman alive, mm. like I, it just feels like something they would have done. And obviously, like when they do it in, is it three where it's his brother? Yes, yeah, like Played that. By Jeremy Irons. Like, <laughs> get the two. I mean, also a great throwback to just old school 
Hollywood filmmaking where you just get British people to play German stand-ins, obviously, like yeah. Star Wars being one of the most famous of those where like the entire empire are British, but yeah. they're all coded like Nazis. Mm-hmm. Some people have tried to deny that. The fucking wildest thing I've ever seen, a guy at length being like, no, nothing to do with stormtroopers or Nazis. It's like, they literally said it is. It's like, yeah, but he's wrong. It's like, what? (laughs) Uh, But we can thank Stephen D'Souza for Hans Gruber being this incredible villain. Pointed out that like, hey, villains generally drive plot forwards, so you should care about them. And they should be written vaguely like protagonists like they're in their own movie where they're the hero and that's a cliche but i think from a from a writing a script perspective i think it does make sense but like that's the problem these days they either try so hard to make them sympathetic that they kind of lose something as a villain or like you have to make sure that everybody knows that they're wrong and and yeah so like hans is this kind of like gentleman thief who says shit like you know oh you're just a common thief i am an exceptional thief thank you very much (laughs) like we're gonna be on a beach on a bit on a beach earning 20 percent is just love it love it so much and also the other thing that i really appreciate in the realm of ambiguity is every single fucking person who is a law enforcement agent in this movie even when we like them like paolo mclean are kind of bad people yes ultimately i'll shot a kid (laughs) i'll shot a child yes and like i want to say these days they wouldn't let that be a plot element but then also police do be shooting children a lot (laughs) and i don't want to root for a cop in any way but like in in the broad strokes of like letting characters be flawed and let there be ambiguity like this wouldn't exist now like and the the, like that, all of the other police are like completely fucking inept, and like, <laughs> and like the the FBI are like, oh, losing twenty percent of the hostages, fine. <laughs> Let's make some jokes about Vietnam. Oh, I'm dead now. Yes, like the FBI are truly incompetent. The deputy yeah. chief of like the LAPD is like makes every single wrong decision. Or he's too distracted by John Bender giving him uh, detention. So uh, you know, for a movie that is kind of mimetic and written off as being like, ugh generic action movie for dumb men for for john mcclain to be like calling the police macho assholes as they try to storm the building it's like this is weirdly refreshing <laughs> like that he's like I also no, don't like, be so gung-ho like yeah but i also like he is obviously in the wrong for his relationship decisions like when he when oh, like gotcha. you hear when you hear it all laid out you're like no this is exactly what like he is being a match of our soul in terms yes. of it like he is basically guaranteed like oh my wife won't make anything of herself when she goes to la she'll be back to my place in like six mm. months or whatever it is and then Didn't she makes it her. herself yeah and then she exactly. becomes like, this exactly. hotshot exec and yeah yeah, yeah. He is fundamentally in the wrong in yep. this movie. Like he's good at his job. He is the, the. I mean, obviously in this in this era of all cops are bastards. Yes. Like John McClane is exactly the kind of propaganda that you would imagine. Like he here he is put into this outsized situation in which he isn't shitting his pants. Out yeah, of one fear cop and stuff can like just that. destroy everyone. Yeah. <laughs> like it is ultimately, but I do re- appreciate the fact that they are basically saying these institutions are filled with people who are incompetent and kind mm-hmm. of full of it and all the rest of it. Even if there is one good cop in quotation marks, like the movie doesn't. But whether he's it. a good cop or not is not really the point. It's just like he is the one we've got, kind of yes. thing. Uh, I think that is the secret source. And then John McClane becomes this towering godlike action figure that they were like deliberately trying to not make him early on. Yeah, yeah, and and why this movie works in a way that the other movies don't. 
Yeah, so like it, the genesis of this idea is so fucking stupid, but it's still these things happen. Jeb Stewart, the original writer, he has a big argument with his wife. Goes out, he's driving. He accidentally almost has a car crash. It turns out he's fine. And then he's like, oh God, and that would have been the last thing I said to my wife. He goes home, he apologises to her, and he writes 35 pages. <laughs> and then he's like plumbing the depths of all of his friendship group for like anyone who's like divorced or, you know, any arguments with their spouse or like, and, and like the thing of like the estranged wife using her maiden name it all comes from all of this. And yeah, when you see that scene and, and like, you know, you see him coming to town and like, before we know the details, you're like, oh, nice Bruce Willis bringing his wife a gift and, and like, you know, he's a he's a good man. And, like, she's, like, anxiously, like, oh, where are you staying? And, like, she's clearly, like, still hot for him kind of thing. And then he just fucking ruins it. Like, it's going yeah. well and it's civil. Yep. And then he's like, fuck you, you use my name to sign checks, don't you? Fuck you. And then it's like, and then it all comes out and he's 100% in the wrong about all of it. Yeah. And he does not deserve Holly at the end, but he gets Holly at the end, so, you know. Because he's a big match. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I mean. <laughs> obviously a lot of this movie is, like, so disgusting at this point. The fact that he is a real person who takes on, like, wounds, the fact that, like, his yes. entire outfit, it gets completely muddied by the end of it. He is shirtless with a gun <laughs> taped to his back. Like, he is literally stripped down to the best skin. The community paintball scene, yeah. Yes, um. yes. <laughs> but like also like I mean you mentioned you mentioned the watch stuff that the yeah. that the criminals had like that is still kind of in here but only well, with Holly uh, yeah Holly's the... expensive watch that Ellis is bragging about like oh yeah oh it's just this expensive watch and he's like oh look at it later yeah it's Hans the thing is holding the... on to the watch and he unclasps it yeah. but even down to like the opening scene where he's on the plane yeah. and and the guy goes like oh what I like to do when I get to a new place is take my shoes off and feel feel the floor and like bunch up my toes and Brown then you end up you. with the entire movie, Bruce Willis has no shoes on. Yep. Um, and then he has to walk on all that glass. And uh... I would have just taken... I mean, I have tiny feet. I have really small feet. So I would have been okay. fine in that situation. But I would have just taken the smaller shoes and been uncomfortable. <laughs> rather than his decision to be like, no. <laughs> I don't even understand why he needs to do any of this in the first place. But anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. And... He, there's also a few more bodies he could have found for shoes at some point in this movie. Yeah. yeah. Like, if he really wanted shoes, he could have found some shoes. Yeah, yeah. He, they're just all very small-footed terrorists, apparently. And they're not <laughs> even terrorists. And it, that scene is weirdly confusing. It's like, what kind of terrorists are you? What do you mean you want money? It's like, is that really a giant step of logic? <laughs> like, but I guess that's coming at a point, though, where like in this era... I mean, I watched I watched Carlos, the, the Oliver Assayas movie, a couple mm. of weeks ago. Weeks ago? Months ago. My God, this year has been... Yep. A, a help it. Um... <laughs> I watched Carlos the the kind of like the movie mini series a couple of months ago, and yeah. uh, you, you, like a lot of this stuff is obviously like ancient history when we were born and stuff like that. But in the seventies, really was very much the thing where like they would go do something like blow up a plane or or whatever it was, and the only list of demands would be free these these uh, these these people who are like being uh, exiled in other countries and stuff yeah. like that. Like it, it really was this thing where like. The overwhelming demands of terrorists from the IRA to to all of these people were free other people who have similar points of view to us in other countries, mm -hmm. and then we will move on. Like yep. we will we will take all these people hostage. You will give us a plane, and you will fly us to a sympathetic nation state. Yes. And obviously, us being the generation that we are, we are raised in an era of terrorism being something incredibly different in yes. in terms of like the way that we perceive it even down to the point that like my partner is is a former journalist and she would 
always kind of like make points where I would say like, why are we not calling lone gun shooters terrorists? Like, mm-hmm. why are we not using this word to describe them? And it was very much this thing where it's like, the word has been so twisted and like so, it brings up so such specific connotations that journalists are afraid to label mm-hmm. acts of terror as they would have been done in the seventies and eighties and whatnot as acts of terror yeah. because they're not perpetrated by Middle Eastern people who are like sp- uh, spreading a, a, a Islamic um, jihad or whatever. Yeah, and yeah, it, nobody it's a... labels a white shooter a domestic terrorist because they're white and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, even though so. even though explicitly when you are when you are doing an act of like lone lone shooter terrorism to to attack white women or like to because you're an incel or whatever it is mm-hmm. that is the literal definition of terror you are trying to instill terror into the heart of a subset of people in yeah. this in this country or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. um and yeah. i mean that's that's just a, a very weird tangent in the episode. <laughs> no but like it, it it does all link back around to like hans like playing them all like fools and like demanding a helicopter he knows he's not going to use and sending Which, yeah, them on a he's... wild goose chase looking up people that may not even exist well no i assume they all exist because he read about them in time magazine but um but yeah he is he is almost definitely trying to like do that thing where like they're expecting it to work like any other hostage terrorist yeah. situation where like i want a plane and i want that plane to be able to fly me to cuba and then yeah. from cuba i will release the release these hostages and they will like get safe passages back to the u.s but i'm now in cuba so i've got safe passage away from yeah, no extradition and all that and uh yeah i mean he they're just they're just prepared. Like they've they've planned for all of it. They replace the security guard with their own. They are able to call out. You know, one of the earliest things John does is pull the fire alarm, and they're able to get it called off as like a you know, oh yeah false alarm, and then that makes them less inclined to respond to his his call. And you get that thing where she's like, um, this is an emergency line. You're like, yeah, no shit, lady. It's not like I'm ordering a fucking pizza. Just anything. send a just send a cop. Just send one. Yeah. Um, why is Owl drive. Uh, obviously, he's gone to like. He's just the nearest one. He's just the nearest one, but like, obviously, he's supposed to be a desk jockey, or are they transferring him to be a desk jockey like in the near future when he has the kid? Um, it may be that even if you are a desk jockey, you drive to and from work in a police cruiser, or like, you do like very low key things. Yeah, I think it maybe just means you don't respond to like armed. I don't know. But yeah, it's just one of those things where obviously I have this long conversation where like Al opens up about his like tragic backstory and like McLean starts by like ripping on him saying like, oh, flat footed, like what? Yeah, exactly. And he's like, oh, what is paperwork not good enough for a cop? And he's like, yep. (laughs) So, oh, okay. (laughs) But Al is like, is represents like the script at large because like every single character introduced gets something whether it's a tiny little quirk or a full-blown i mean i personality. Legi- i legit forgot the the subplot with the news guy so <laughs> yeah. when they when they hard cut to a new studio yeah and like i was like why why do we get to the new studio my partner said like oh it's because they introduce like this this is how hans finds out about exactly. holly and their relationship and i was like oh right and then but then like that subplot is so well developed where we keep cutting back to this like blowhard desk desk yeah anchor. where like they all hate the anchor and there's like beef between the reporter and the and the anchor and, and all of this stuff and it all goes very nicely with watching broadcast news yeah, recently. It, was, it was very <laughs> funny to think that like this is a very similar dynamic between <laughs> between the act between the characters in broadcast news in this movie but yeah. like writ large and stuff like that and the fact that like the payoff for holly's character is getting to punch this this um, reporter in the face. Well, um, I mean, they 
he barged into their home and shoved a camera in the face of their children and threatened to deport their maid or housekeeper or whatever. And that gave Han, like, she was able to outwit all of this. And then, like, this guy blew it for her because, yeah, she's using her maiden name and she's downturned the picture with, with John in it and then... Yeah, Hans is just a clever guy, and then like he just pieces it together really quickly, and like that she is that she's like reacting largely so much to seeing them, and then he like picks up the picture, he's like you devious fuck. And Alan Rickman, he got a there was a scene where he was supposed to like rough her up a little bit or something, and he got it changed because one he was like Hans seems like he's above that kind of thing, and two Holly's like a powerful career woman, I don't think she would let him do it, and it's like fucking yeah, Alan Rickman, you go. He's too busy giving that, his funny lines and monologuing and doing many yeah. accents. <laughs> it is funny that William Atherton is one of like the four actors who comes back for the second movie. <laughs> like they're like, who are the people that we really want to see come back for Die Hard? Uh, well, Barty Bruce Willis has to be in all of them. Yes. Reginald Bell Johnson has to come back. Bonnie yes. Bedelia has to come back. Mm-hmm. William Atherton, he can be reporting on this. Yeah, on this thing. And like, it's so funny that like Holly. So in the second one, she's on the plane that has to just keep going around because it's out of fuel and they can't land or whatever. And then in the third one, she's just a voice on the phone, and he keeps, he's supposed to call her to, like, save their marriage, and he keeps not calling her, and then when he finally calls her, she just yells at him, and he just wanders off or something, and it's like, what have you done to Holly? Like, she was this, like, really cool, like, strong, independent woman, and then... Are they broken up? In in three, or are they broken up in just Live Through or Die Hard? Because obviously Live Through or Die Hard's got all the scenes with, like, they replace... Bedelia with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Yeah. Who I did not realise was back. I did not realise was fucking back in in Good Good Die to Die Hard. I thought they just were like, oh yeah, he has two kids. Let's get Captain Boomerang himself for for his son. Of course. Remember when they were trying to make Jai Courtney into a a star? Jai Courtney, Joel Edgerton, Joel Kinnaman, they're all the same person. All of those... Like have roles that I like them. Oh yeah, they're all every. Jai Cartney, Jai Cartney does not pop until he gets to be back as Captain Boomerang for Suicide Squad. Like he is legitimately <laughs> fun for his one fucking scene. I so funny they got him back. They I think are broken up or like they he's like on his last thread or whatever right. and it's like his last chance and he has to call her about something and he keeps not calling her and then when he does they just argue and he i think he even like puts the phone down while she's still yelling at him and it's like <laughs> women right and it's like no not women right this is not <laughs> what die hard was <laughs> yeah i mean it's just, it's just obviously interesting where they have to turn his daughter into the into yeah. the familiar relationship. I mean, he's so old at this point that like they're also and that movie is so toned down. The fact that the the Yipikaye motherfucker is <laughs> is covered up by the gunshots is and also like that being that being his kill line in that movie where like he shoots the villain in the head or whatever it is. When in this movie it's literally just one of like six it, little throwaway gags, yeah. yeah. Saying because it because they're riffing on cowboys it. and stuff. Yes. Yeah. And that's just my question. Like, when a movie takes a, a throwaway line like that and then turns it into a catchphrase, it can become really grating because it's like that moment had no weight on his mind. As he said, like, it is just a flippant moment when they're discussing cowboys and like who they want to be like and whatnot. And then all well, the way it comes back in Die Hard 4 feels mm. so kind of like sanitized and, and sanitized and also like 
oh, we have to be metally aware of like what Die Hard is, even though yeah. John McClane would not be aware of the mimetic nature of this line in this movie and stuff like that. It would be like if in every movie he like lowered someone in the elevator that said, now I have an insert weapon here, ho, ho, ho. Like that was just a, that was just a joke that he made in that movie to kind of like put some weight onto or put some fear into the hearts of these people. And again, in this movie, Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, is, is one line. You've also, you know, now I know what a TV dinner feels like. Welcome to the party, pal. Just so many of these of these little ones. Oh, I forgot that um, <laughs> Ellis says Spreckensy talk when he wants to parlay with them. That's just hilariously bad. Yeah, I mean, you know, we could go through all the little, like, action plot elements, but, like... It, it kind of feels like the least consequential stuff of this maybe best action movie ever is the action itself, but it's all generally, you know, pretty good, and, like, there's some clever stuff with, like, the fire hose and, and the, you know, shoot the glass because he's barefoot and, and all this kind of shit, and there's, like, an ugliness to all the fighting, which I appreciate, where he's just, like, yelling and frothing at the mouth and, like, he kills the first one by just falling on him down the stairs and then... By the end of it, he's like, yeah, I fucking killed your brother. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Carl just has, like, a neck made of iron, apparently, because he survives being hung by a chain and then wanders out so that Owl can shoot him to get his hero's redemption. Like, ah, you shot someone badly once, but you just have to shoot someone well, and then you can be a good cop again. <laughs> yep. Now, now Which is the say, part that bothers, of course. Yeah. I just want to confirm that he does indeed say yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, in every movie. Oh, okay. Uh, he says he says he says it at the end of Die Hard Two when he's like one, it's like triumphantly he does it, and then the Die oh, Hard it, with... does, he, does he like toss a lighter into fuel and then yes, say it? He does. Yeah, yes. oh, God, of course. <laughs> obviously, obviously, I wonder whether or not it sticks in his mind more because Hans says it to him just before he's about to shoot him, doesn't he? he says like, which I mean, yes. Alan Rickman's got the best delivery of Yippie motherfucker because he's doing it with like that German accent, which is just yeah. great. Um, the, the Die Hard wiki has a little notification on <laughs> that just says, "In fact, many fans said the dramatic, triumphant Yippie from Die Hard Two is the best of the entire series, although some disagree and prefer the original, subtler version." <laughs> um, some actually um, are actually are uh, fucking. I I love the. I mean, we we you you forced me to read Transformers. Uh, How dare book. you? <laughs> it's great. It's Thank an incredible, you. An incredible run of comic books, but it was basically just like, here, Ben, I've bought you this. If you don't know, I will no. feel guilty that you, you haven't started read it. it. And then I think you got like volume one or something. Yes, I did, yeah. And then I, I, or maybe even volume one and two, and then I gifted you three, four, and five to keep you going. <laughs> and I was like, um, after that, by this point, you will be so hooked, you will willingly want to read the rest yes, of it. That and is that is true. true. That is true. I did finish all of Transformers More Than Meets the Eye. Thank you. Thank you, John Roberts. Thank you, John Roberts. Uh, I think <laughs> our first John Roberts shout out on this podcast, actually. Somehow. One day uh, we will have to tell the masses that, no, seriously, there's a Transformers book that is like genuinely so good. Anyway. Yes, but like I, I love the the Transformers wiki is maybe the most like flippant <laughs> and like, little opinion aside. I did ever. I did think to myself, wait, why are you bringing this up? I'm willing to talk about it. And then yeah, no, you're right. Transformers wiki is full of like glib little jokes. <laughs> like, 
this guy sucks, basically. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Especially the pictures, like the little the little pieces underneath the pictures and stuff like that. But it's just, I do love these, like, when they're not Wikipedia and they've got, like, an army of people who would just go through, like, moderating everything. When you go on the fan wikis for, like, stuff and they include, like, incredibly apropos opinion, like, lines like that. Some people actually think that the riddles make Die Hard with a Vengeance a more timeless movie than Detonator. Yeah. And, you know, like, as I said, we could talk about all these action moments, but, like, yeah, it is a movie of, like, this flawed guy that, like, realises that he's a dick and doesn't like himself very much and is clearly depressed. And this very clever thief who, like, by the by, like, his entire plan was to get the FBI to cut the power so that it would disable the last lock that they couldn't break themselves. I wonder like, what, his, what do you think his plan was originally? Like, were they going to call... Like, sure, but he wanted the FBI to come He in, says really early, it? I'm waiting on the FBI. Yes, but, like, he obviously isn't expecting John McClane to call the cops in. So at some point, he wants to get the FBI in. And is it just going to be a matter of... Oh, I think he was got, like, got, we'll, we'll, we'll cut all these locks, and then when we're ready, we'll call the cops, and we'll make fake terrorist demands. But, right, like, okay. John just... Like, John is almost, like, just bringing the schedule forward, and he's like, okay, I'll just stall the cops for a little bit longer then until we're ready. But, no, I think he was going to call them all along. I have to assume it probably would have been that they would have gone straight to terrors, and they would have said, we've got oh, hostages yeah, yeah. on this floor and stuff like that, whereas the way that the cops get called in this movie is they don't believe something is happening until, like, a body has dropped on the police car. <laughs> And, like, it doesn't matter that, like, you can see the gunfight going on on the top of the building when, like, They're Al is there. wildly firing guns and nobody can hear this thing. I mean, look, 32, 34 floors, whatever it is, is really high and maybe you wouldn't hear it. But, I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Just wild gunfire. Not a movie where they're conserving bullets by any means. No, he, like, runs out... He steals machine guns and then runs out and bullets on those machine guns, mm. like, with yeah, sure. reckless abandon. Yeah. And I, that element, too, that he is, like, doing reconnaissance on site kind of thing. He he starts the movie with his service pistol, and he ends it with his service pistol, actually. And everything else he's having to gather as he goes, because he's just... You know, he arrives at the party, it's awkward, he wants to go clean up because he's just been on a big flight, and he's... You know, so he's taking his dress shirt off and he's in a vest and no shoes. And then, oh shit, I have to go do action hero stuff now. And uh, he has to gather everything as he goes and it all just kind of... He's just resourceful and lays little traps, gets familiar with the building. It's just so good. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to ask you two questions now. Okay. Who is your favourite of like the good side characters? So we'll say like Holly, Powell, Argyle... Ellis will lump in here. We'll put, oh we'll no, like, we can't anyway. lump Ellis in there. <laughs> Ellis suck. Ellis is the true Ellis villain of the film. Ellis represents Ellis... like a true evil in the world of capitalism sure, and but alpha like, male. I, I want it away from like the thirteen, and even then, the thirteen is not is twelve because obviously Gruber is like head above shoulder and all the rest yeah, of those. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I really like Holly. I think Holly's a great character. I think Bonnie Bedelia probably deserved more <laughs> in her career than she got, but no, I, I think you know. I think she plays the scenes with, like, anticipating John's arrival really, really well. And then, like, the simple nature of, like, oh, that's my man and I'm hot for him. And then, like, you know, the ugly stuff comes out and she defends herself and she's right. And then, you know, she sort of, like, outwits Hans a little bit. And, like, even something simple, like, when she, like, asks if they can move a pregnant lady to a sofa. And he's like, no, I'll bring you a sofa. Because, like, he's like, 
you know, I'm not unreasonable, but also I'm not stupid. Kind yeah, of. yeah, I know what you're going to try and do if I put you in a side room away from the rest of us. I mean, I'm happy. Bonnie Bedelia, the thing I remember from was she was on Parenthood, the mm. uh, the Jason Caton show that he followed up Friday Night Lights with as a regular for 105 episodes. So I'm sure she got like... Sure, 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 sure. She's, she's got like some nice residuals coming through on that at the very least. Yeah, and like I'm sure they all got paid more for Die Hard 2 than they did Die Hard 1 and all of yes, this. I'm going to get... Are you an Argyle guy? <laughs> Uh, I enjoy all of the cutaways to Argyle. I'm glad he gets his hero moment. His hero <laughs> moment feels funnier because it's just like him just punching Theo in the face. Where yep. He legitimately punched Theo, doesn't yes. he? Yes, he actually punched Clarence Gilliard. Gilliard in the face. Um, I guess not an experienced actor, I don't know. It's, it's yeah, a I, weird I, I, one because he's just chill. They, they make an effort to make sure like to cut to him so you remember he's a thing. <laughs> And then he gets this weird moment where he's like panic. He finally clocks what's happening, starts driving around, can't get anywhere, and then he like does a stealth car moment where he's trying to pull this limo around really subtly, and then rams him and punches him, and he saves the fucking day and drives them away yeah, at the exactly. end. And I, I, th- I mean, obviously, Val Johnson is just is really yes. good and charismatic in all of these scenes. The fact that he's like literally just talking into the microphone, uh, into the into the walkie-talkie, is and really really good at them. It is dragged down by just the fact that he. Murdered a child. Yeah, it the sucks movie, that he's a cop made... and that yeah that they were. But it's, it's, it's a really less, good little performance. Though. It's a really good performance. It's just marred by the fact that like the the emotional climax to his role is look how well he shoot now. Yes, <laughs> thank God he got all that practice in shooting a child. Otherwise, <laughs> he wouldn't have been able to shoot this man. <laughs> and obviously, obviously, very different connotations in the eighties than it is nowadays. Yeah. But it is just one of those things where it's just like. You should not be like. If anything, the fact that he is still a police officer is maybe the biggest indictment of yeah. like policing in general. Whereas, like, you should not you should be, doing... be. You should have been siphoned off, quietly pensioned out, whatever, and be told to go find a different job. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, it happens in the wire where, like, in the wire, there is an officer who like has a very similar arc where, like, he mates, he fucks up, and he goes to become a teacher, and then ends okay. up like helping in the school city kids and all the rest. Maybe of Maybe that so... is the answer to. I've been struggling with the end to this five season Batman show I've been drafting forever maybe Bruce just goes to become a teacher you know that would be, that would actually be kind of sweet yeah <laughs> just just low paid and all the rest and then and then obviously the other question is who is except for Hans who is obviously like Theo you don't even have to ask obviously Theo, Theo is your favourite Theo rules Theo enters talking about the fucking LA Lake, the Showtime Lake <laughs> and goes out being punched for realsies and gets to live <laughs> he's also just very charismatic and like I don't know, there's just an element of, like, shit-talkery from him. I guess because he knows, only he knows how to do all of this stuff, so he's important. But, like, he kind of talks to Hans in a way that none of the others do, and him I kind narrating, of appreciate that. Him narrating, like, the movements of yes. the cops and the FBI is I really love that funny. scene, actually, when, when they're like, right, we're going to send in SWAT teams, and they just fucking destroy them <laughs> because they can see them, and they shoot out the lights, and... You know, they blow up the fucking <laughs> tank when that's set, or the whatever, the armored car, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, um, I don't, I don't know. I like Uli, mm. who is because Uli uh, steals chocolate. Uli does steal chocolate. Uli's just a great visual look to him the entire time. And like, yeah. who is the who is the one who is like the security guard? Is that Marco uh, or Tony? Um, yeah. But the one, no, the yeah, one, the, the one, the one that dresses... pretends to be a security guard is is very funny as well. Yeah. Yeah. And when he... when he's like watching the game and then yes. and then Al walks off and he turns like it's a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
like his like old thing where he's like he's got a pre-rehearsed rant about like the game that he's watching. Yeah. It's like you obviously threw that on and have like are riffing on it and all the rest of it. Yeah. But like I mean, again, that's my favorite thing about all the criminals in this is they're obviously really qualified and really good yeah, at that. Yeah, yeah. Like again, we when we talked about it when Bruce Willis is like scanning the list of names on the wall, he can see the list of names yeah. uh, that Hans just manages to say Bill yeah, whatever his name Bill is. Quiet. Clay, um, and there's a W Clay on there. It's like good. This yeah. is like great. Like it's tit for tat. They're using like they have contingencies set up very obviously. Yeah, because he improvises that moment. Like he he's just going up to check on the explosives, and he finds himself at the end of the gun. He's like, shit. Okay, pretend to be a yeah. And, and I and I like that John is you know when he's spying on them, he's writing down all their names and stuff like that. Like it's a good little. And then it freaks them out that he knows their names, that kind of thing. And he's also able to report it to the to the police and you have that interesting dynamic where like they can kind of all hear each other on the radios a bit yeah a bit weird that Argyle can pick them up on his limo but fuck it uh, I think in an earlier draft Argyle was playing rap music over the radio so that they wouldn't use the radio kind of thing to help him out and then they took that out because they obviously want I guess they, they wanted to keep that intimate like John and uh, that's the thing Al. is like when when you get there later on you kind of go like they everyone can hear everyone's conversations yep. at this point because they're all like Unless they're just not buying the walkie-talkies, but like it was all very cross-reference and stuff like that. And the only stuff that McLean is saying, McLean, <laughs> the only stuff that McLean is saying later on is like, like he's hinting around things, but he's being emotionally open with Powell. Yes, yes, but, but not in a way that would compromise him. Yeah, and and again, like that, those two just talking to each other over the radio is like, you know, maybe the heart of the movie. And it's like, this is why you get two actual actors because today this is like some you know, the walls are up and they're being guarded, kind of macho men saying funny things kind of thing. And and here it's like, he's openly like falling apart over the radio and, and he's saying, I love you, pal, and stuff like that. And the knowing look at the end when they see each other kind of thing. And that, you know, that he guesses he's a cop and, you know, they guess things about each other. And yeah, no, it's, it's, it's all good. They filled the thing with actors and it was written by a guy that doesn't give a shit about action. But then it was like, you know, stunt directed by people that knew and it's just very well crafted and put together. And yeah. Have you, have you, so so a complete tangent now, but like, mm-hmm. I want to finish this on, on Rickman. Have you read the Rickman diaries that no. were like coming out for you? So of the guardians have like published excerpts from them and stuff like that. And obviously the, the big focal point of them is he's a lot of these diaries are being done when he's filming the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> and so you end up with just these like, really like he really kind of brutally honest at points opinions on the movies and stuff like that he's obviously very flippant about the way they shoot the movies like this feels and like it's very it's shit and it's done by amateurs well, like so so his his quote on the on 4th of november for the harry potter premiere the film should only be seen on a big screen it requires a scale in depth that matches the hideous score by john williams <laughs> And there's just there's just so much of this throughout all of them, and it was just like I, I mean I just I thought of that where it's like I really would like to see Rickman's diaries from like '88 when he was like <laughs> filming Die Hard. Like, what are his opinions on this? Like, going yeah. from stage two to this, I don't know. It spans 22 years. It starts in 1993 and ends in 2015. Like, literally just before yeah. he went to hospital to. Uh, for his untimely passing, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm just like, what? What would his diaries have looked like on this? Where he's just like, production is such a mess, so much different to theatre. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm so much more better qualified than all these other actors. <laughs> no, I think he he really bonded with um, Val Johnson and and Bedelia. They all hung out between takes, kind of thing. 
I assume there's lots of juice about filming uh, his role of the Metatron for Dogma. <laughs> They've got me in a hoodie. I don't understand it. There is. I th- it does include Dogma stuff. I think one of the experts I'll probably send you after we record if I can find it. It's, it's staggering that they landed Alan Rickman for that movie. Also, my partner basically only knew him as Snape. I was like, wow, he's so handsome. I was like, yeah. He's so hot in this. Like, so, so hot. When he rocks up in his big fucking coat and he's just the coolest fucker alive. Yeah. Anyway, it's Die Hard. It's Immortal. IMO, best action movie ever. And, uh, yeah, become another one that has become a personality for a a generation of people, uh, including the fictional uh, Jake Peralta, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, might as well just be Die Hard. But I've enjoyed it. I love Die Hard. I I could go watch it again right now. Um, But I won't, because we have other movies we have to get to in this miniseries next week being... Midnight Run, which kept Beverly Hills Cop off the list, so I will expect strong arguments as to why that was allowed to happen, but then again, I didn't let you have Roger Rabbit, so maybe I should just uh, <laughs> keep quiet. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, I, I mean, is Roger Rabbit my favourite movie of the 80s? It might be my favourite movie of the 80s. I think we're <sighs> You really can't un- keep doing this. I mean, every time I get an opportunity to, I'm just going to keep on like bumping it up. I mean, I do genuinely think Roger Rabbit's in my top ten of all time, but also I'm like... Back to the Future really fucking good. Mm-hmm. But Who Framed Roger Rabbit, like, fucking all-time movie. When I got to rewatch that for the when I did all the Zemeckis movies, I was just, like, fucking bouncing in my seat. Just like, look at this! Yeah. Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny get to have a conversation. Yeah. Bob Hoskins is, like, fucking committed. Yeah. Well, Christopher maybe you should have... Creepy. Maybe should have argued harder. I don't know. <sighs> no, I know where I'm going to lose on these things, and Back to the Future's most people's favourites, so I'm just... <sighs> Sorry, bud. But anyway, we can talk Midnight Run next week. Sounds fun. And until then, I have one question for you. Will there be movies? But all things being equal, I'd rather be watching movies. (laughs) Well, that was disappointing. Anyway, bye, everyone. (laughs)